Chapter Twenty One of the Fairy of the Snows by Francis J. Finn, S.J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Twenty One, in which everybody is happy, and the good ship hardly ever Captain Romance comes sailing in. I was sitting in my room at five o'clock in the evening on a typical day of February. Darkness had come early for it was still snowing and sleeting heavily. Dressed in street attire, I waited for an expected visitor, and thus waiting, meditated. Many things had happened since Alice Morrow had stepped into what I considered, with fervent thanks to God, an ideal position. Little gypsy-faced, gypsy-haired Jenny Jenkins had lost, as the saying is, her mother early in the autumn. Strictly speaking, it was no loss at all. Mrs. Jenkins, one of a large class, had drunk to excess all her life, with the usual result, a very short span of years. There were no mourners, so to speak of, at her funeral, save Jenny, her three brothers, and an older sister, who bade fair to preserve the tradition of her mother, in the way of brew consumption, in season and out. It is true there were also present in the church six or seven old cronies of the deceased, women with swollen and reddened faces, rouge having no part in the colouring, and watery eyes, whose presence was made known wherever they went by a circumambient atmosphere of stale beer. Thanks to the thoughtfulness of the older sister, they had celebrated the wake, as they would celebrate a baptism, or a marriage, or a misfortune, or anything untoward, or unusual, in terms of beer. During the mass they nodded and slumbered, visions of the foaming glass, doubtless, making pleasant their unaccustomed devotions. There were no mourners except the children. Nevertheless, out of regard to Jenny, Mrs. Milton was there, and Mrs. Milton went to the graveyard. How she brought it about, no one knows. But somehow she secured the older girl's consent to bring Jenny Jenkins to her own home, and from that day to this, Jenny has made good the promise of her first communion. She is the leader of her class, clean, regular, and gives promise of growing up a credit to the good woman who gave the child her first home, and the next best thing to a mother's love. David has left the office. He was honest and straightforward to the end. But two years at the work showed beyond a doubt that he was a square peg in a round hole. It took me some time to discover that David was very fond of horses. It was easy to place him as the boy on a delivery wagon of the Adams Express. He has been promoted several times, and some day, I doubt not, the artless youth will be stable superintendent. He still visits me and continues to answer my most idiotic questions with painstaking exactness and unchanged gravity. Elsie Morrow is now the prefect of the St. Agnes Sodality, a society for the school children but recently established. So great was her reputation for holiness that she was elected to the office by practically a unanimous vote of the 130 members. Lacking the vivacity of Alice, she is still like her in many ways. The following letter from Grace Elwood, received at Christmas time, contained grateful news. Dear Father Carney, a Merry Christmas to you, as this leaves me feeling the same. Father, I've made my last appearance. Mama is now getting a small pension, and besides, she is teaching, here in Chicago, calisthenics in three convent schools, and so we don't have to work any more. I am glad, and Mama is gladder. We go to communion each day and never forget you. How is my dearest friend, Alice Morrow? Give her my fond love. 
We are coming to see you both next spring, and in the meantime, I am going to do my best to be a good little girl. Your true friend, Grace Elwood. All these things, and many others, of no special interest to the reader, was I meditating upon with a thankful heart, when the porter, duly knocking, informed me that there was a man in the parlor who wanted to see me, by appointment. The man arose as I entered. He was a striking figure, above the middle height, clear of eye, ruddy of cheek, with slightly grizzled mustache. It was hard for me, though I had been expecting him, to recognize in the finely dressed man my old trouble, Mr. Merle. "'So it's you, Mr. Merle,' I exclaimed, grasping his hand. "'Yes, Father, here I am, nearly two years older, but I hope a changed man. I am better and stronger now than I have been at any time these ten years, and with the help of God I am going, for the sake of my wife and little ones, to take proper care of myself.' "'I never imagined,' I said, "'you would look so well.' "'Oh, Father, what a fool, what a beast I have been!' These two years have been years of self-examination. I've had my struggles, especially in the first year, but since I left home, not one drop of liquor has passed my lips. Are you satisfied that you have conquered yourself? I'm afraid to say yes, Father, but before I leave this room, I am going to take an oath, never, so long as I live, to touch liquor. Mr. Murrow, I said, I believe you have won your fight. So long as I don't touch it at all, I am safe and therefore I'll not touch it. The craving is gone. I have not had the craving these twelve months and more. And do you feel fit for work? As a plasterer? No, father. The doctor said I should never have gone into that sort of work, and for the past two years I have been plugging hard at the studies, which I neglected as a boy. My parents were good, father. They were, though you may not believe it, refined. I do believe it. But I was the black sheep of the family. At eighteen I ran away from home, and happening to get in with some very bad companions, I chose their work, plastering, to keep with them. It is a fact, father, that I actually cultivated my taste for drink. My stay at the fresh air home has given me a chance to come back to the studies and taste in my boyhood. Some day, please God, once that I get on my feet, I am going back to the old home. Since running away, I have been ashamed to let them hear from me. No matter how nice and refined your people are, I commented, they will be proud of you when they see your good wife and your lovely children. Father, I've been bursting to ask you how they are. Don't you know? For over a month I have heard nothing. Alice, I know, is doing some sort of work, but she has given me no details. She told me not to worry, that they were well provided for. I often wondered how. Dr. Kelly has had his way in the matter of news, Mr. Merle. He thought it better, all things considered, that you should be kept in ignorance of many things till you were considered fit to come home. It was he who directed Alice to cease all communications with you over a month. In a few minutes, however, you will know all. Come, we will go together. First, Father, let me make my solemn and binding promise to God. I am no prophet, but I dare predict that Mr. Morrow will be true to that promise unto death. Together, through the driving snow, we walked down as far as Sixth and Sycamore. Mr. Murrow would have gone on, but I caught his arm, saying, We turn east here. Aren't we going home? Yes, but no longer on Third near Broadway. Your family has changed its address. Where do they live? On Pioneer Street, in the house Alice set her heart on some years ago, when... When I made a beast of myself. 
God forgive me. But Father Carney, who is paying the rent? All in good time, I answered. We arrived very shortly at the little two-story house on Pioneer Street. There were lights in every window, and, as we put foot on the steps, the door was thrown open, and there, framed in the doorway, with the snow beating all about her, stood with outstretched hands the radiant fairy of the snows. Oh, Papa! she cried. Joy was the note of that cry, and sprang into his arms. Then forth from every corner of the room rushed Mother, and Elsie, and Francis, forth tall the baby, and all of them, catching Mr. Merle by arms and legs and clothes, bore him with shouting and hugging and kissing and laughter into the home. Never since Pioneer Street won its name did it witness such a joyous homecoming. The wife and children clung to Mr. Merle with an intensity of affection, all circumstances considered, which made me rub my eyes. To me the man had been a moral monster, a heartbreaking incubus. I had considered him only in one light. The children knew him better. He had been, strange as it may seem to those who have read this narrative, a fond, devoted father, despite the one weakness which had shut out from me all thought of any redeeming quality. One by one, holding them at arm's length, Mr. Morrow, in a veritable transport of joy, gazed upon wife, and Alice, and Elsie, and Francis, and the baby. He looked and saw that they were bright, and healthy, and happy. Presently, sinking back upon a sofa, he covered his eyes with his hands. Happiness had unmanned him. "'Now you know the papa I used to talk to you about,' whispered Radiant Alice. "'He is himself now, good, big, and strong, with the kindest of hearts.' "'And so, Alice, he will remain to the end. I feel sure that, from now on, he will always be himself.' "'That's what Dr. Kelly says, father, and the young doctor out there is willing to stake his professional reputation on my father's cure from tuberculosis and on his moral reform.' And Dr. Kelly adds that while Papa was to blame for excessive drinking in the beginning, for the last six years his trouble has been almost purely physical. Mrs. Morrow had slipped from the room, now returned with the Daltons and Miss Quinlan, and with them the party was complete. "'Where,' said Mr. Morrow, after a cordial exchange of greetings, "'did you get all this beautiful furniture?' "'A fairy brought it,' I made haste to answer, "'and that is not all. Come upstairs, Mr. Morrow.' We all went up in a body, and amidst chatter and laughter and badinage, the head of the house saw his own room, the room of Alice, that of Elsie, and that of Francis, clean, neat, and though simple in appointments, and the very best of taste. It was a true home. Wealth could not do more. I should like to know that fairy, ejaculated Mr. Merle. There she stands, I said, pointing to Alice, the fairy of the snows. When Mr. Merrill, for the first time, heard how Alice had come to earn her appellation, he hung his head. When from Miss Dalton he got the story of Alice's success in the civil service examination, he hung it lower. When he was told that Alice, though it seemed the special providence of God, had at once found a position at nine hundred a year, and that giving perfect satisfaction, she was now receiving one hundred a month, he covered his face with his hands, and when, finally, I told him that the serene and gentle Elsie, who had thrown herself at his feet, on the floor at his side, gazing up at him with simple, unaffected love, was at the end of the eighth grade to go to the academy on East Sixth for a year or two, and then enter the Notre Dame convent. He raised his head once more, a great awe upon his features, and said in tones the impressiveness which I shall never forget, 
Why has God been so good to me? And fell to embracing his children again. Papa, interrupted Alice, you are invited to my party. Party, my dearest? Yes, Papa, my birthday party. I'm sixteen today, and no girl ever felt happier on her birthday than I do right now. Come, Papa. And she led the happy father down the stairway and into the dining room. Surprise had been so piled on surprise that one would think Mr. Morrow's power of emotion was exhausted. But the candles on the table, the lights above, the flowers and the sheen of glass, the colored designs, the repast itself, forced the father to gasp again. Much as taste and money and exceeding care had done to make the dining room a thing of beauty, the prettiest detail was furnished, all unconsciously, by the four librarians, Alice's four classmates and partners in mischief. Two of them, flushing and bowing and smiling, stood at the entrance to the kitchen, bonneted and aproned as cooks. Two of them, likewise blushing and bowing and smiling, stood at either end of the table, neat-handed, beribboned, and fitted out as typical waitresses. It was a party within a party. Assisted by Alice, they were to take care of us, and, their own turn come, were to banquet together, recall old days, not forgetting, you may be sure, Master David with his Japanese snuff. The hours passed happily, and then, leaving the girls to carry on the festivity, Margaret Dalton, her sisters, Miss Quinlan, and myself took our leave. Alice was busy at the time in entertaining her schoolmates, and we did not like to break in upon their lively chatter and gay laughter. As the door closed upon us, we were all filled with a sense of thanksgiving. So much for heredity and environment, I said. You conquered both, father, said Miss Quinlan. Not at all, I gave up, said I. It was Margaret and her sisters. No, it wasn't, they protested. Margaret added, we don't work. I hope for earthly reward, and we all find charity work rather hard and often ungrateful. But even from a natural point of view, the joy the Morrow family has given us makes up for any number of seeming failures. We plant and we sow, I commented it, but it is God who gives the increase. Just then a cheerful, silvery call caused us to turn around. The Morrow door was open, and out on the step stood Alice, holding in her hand the birthday cake with sixteen candles burning brightly. Behind her in the shadow, we could see the four librarians, grouped together, with arms around each other's shoulders. By an unstudied effect, the light of the candles burning clear, for the wind had died away, fell full upon the smiling, happy, beautiful face of sweet sixteen, and the snowflakes wrapped her about as in a veil. "'Good-bye, good-bye,' she cried. "'Look,' cried Teresa Dalton, "'look!' Did you ever see so pretty a picture, that background of girls and the face of Alice, the sweetest child that e'er drew breath, standing out in all its loveliness, and the snow rioting about her? Her name is once more justified. Our Fairy of the Snows, said Miss Quinlan. End of chapter 21 Recording by Maria Therese End of The Fairy of the Snows by Francis J. Finn, S.J.